All right, people. Welcome to BizzleCast 38. This is the Bizzle Top 3 Blockbuster Movies of the Year. It's not the top three movies of the year, or the best three movies of the year, but the top blockbuster movies. Now, I define this uh, as making over $100 million. And part of it is I just can't compare these movies to Brooklyn, which I saw, Bridge of Spies, which I didn't love, which I saw, and The Big Short, or Spotlight, which were great and which I saw. Just can't compare them. And because of Bizzlecast is sort of a pop culture podcast, I thought I would hone in, especially because my expertise is greater, in uh, talking about the best blockbuster Hollywood films of the year. Now, I should say that numbers one and two, which really were fighting for first place for a while, uh, those two were obvious for me and would be in my top films, top five of the year for sure. One is nominated for Academy Award. One should have been and got snubbed. We will get there. Number three was more difficult. And in fact, initially, my podcast was top five of the year with a number of honorable mentions. But, you know, as usual, uh, the recording for each of the movies went long. And so I said, screw it. My top three movies are three that almost everyone can get behind. The ones that were fighting for four and five included Straight Outta Compton, included Avengers Age of Ultron, included Ant-Man, and included Terminator Genesis. These were movies that people were more split on, other than maybe Straight Outta Compton. So, you know, uh, <laughs> and in an attempt to preserve some of what I've been working on, I'll give a quick honorable mention to Straight Outta Compton. And I'm doing a Race in Hollywood podcast very soon. It should probably follow this um, as Bizzlecast 39, I would think. And so we're going to talk about Straight Outta Compton as well as Creed um, in that podcast. So I narrowed it down to the top three. And these were three that were very successful on a number of levels, not always in the same way, not always in terms of the amount of money. And I will say that uh, one of the top three, and you'll know when I get there, um, even if it hadn't quite crossed the $100 million mark, I would have probably put in there because it is a Hollywood movie, but in all the best senses and combines indie sensibilities. The number two movie was very close. It was very different from the number one. There's a huge ensemble cast on an epic scale, but was very much about, you know, sort of <laughs> radical humanism and the human spirit. And the first and second movie, although they don't share a lot, do share that. The number three movie will be pretty obvious. I did love it. I was tempted to put Avengers Age of Ultron 3, but ultimately the one I put at number three is the one that most of you have seen and probably loved. So I'm just going to go from three to two to one, and I hope you enjoy it. Um, there's a number of other movies out there that I loved, um, most of which I've mentioned, but I want to just jump right into the top three. So I hope you enjoy this, and I bring you number three, Star Wars The Force Awakens. All right, people, as we slide into the third best Hollywood blockbuster movie of the year, shit is getting very real. Star Wars The Force Awakens does a ton of things right. Not a lot wrong, and I'll actually defend, uh, if I have time, things that people didn't love about the movie. 
I listen to uh, uh, you know a lot of nerd podcasts, but not a lot of Star Wars ones. Now, as it got close to the movie and we got more trailers and stuff, I started listening to non-spoiler Star Wars podcasts, but I've definitely been listening to three or four different Star Wars podcasts in terms of their reviews and kind of analyses over n- numerous podcasts um, after having seen the movie myself a bunch of times, just to get a sense of how people feel out there, and uh, I can't remember which podcast it was. I believe the podcast is called The Star Wars Underworld. Great cast of characters that I don't know where they're from, but they do a very good job, very professional. Anyways, the podcast they released uh, January 8th dealt with... Uh, the, you know, quote-unquote controversy, eh, not a controversy, the criticism that the movie was too much like the original and especially the whole Death Star thing. You know, that's my biggest problem with the movie. I'll just get it out of the way that they really had to lean on a third Death Star. They couldn't come up with anything. I think they just wanted to get people re-engaged and re-involved with some, you know, familiar images and concepts and story points and even character points. So I think in a weird way, they just had to get it out of the way. Like they knew they were going to use a planet-sized Death Star in one of the movies. And by doing it in episode seven and with two more movies left in the new trilogy plus the standalones they're gonna have to be more creative in coming up with weapons of mass destruction or not relying on weapons of mass destruction being the main plot or i should say the thing around which the plot revolves from an action standpoint and from a you know drama standpoint in the climax so they got it out of their system that's my only main criticism but what makes star wars great the original star wars and now this one is the characters and good writing for those characters george lucas kind of forgot how to write during the prequels good that he sold it apparently he's been critical of force awakens that just sounds like sour grapes to me lucas but the writing of this was was very good but it was very fit for the actors and the characters meaning there's nothing revolutionary about it but the main characters ray and poe and uh john boyega and so forth as finn none of them were ever out of character I know some people think that Finn was a little over the top, uh, manic, and you know his language was a little too naturalistic or whatever. I personally love that because those are two things we haven't seen in Star Wars: is just someone with a ridiculous amount of energy on stage and someone that talks like a normal person in 2015. I think you need that. I hope they do more of that. We'll see. I've already done a Star Wars mini review, so I'm not going to spend too much time on this one, especially because it's so obviously a great movie. The fact that it has a 93% from critics on Rotten Tomatoes and is even higher than the user score of 90 is really astounding. And to go back to what I was getting to before with the Star Wars uh, Underworld podcast, one of them brought up, and I have experienced this as well, and if you listen to my Star Wars review slash analysis with Gabriel and Adam Dietz a few podcasts ago, another reason I'm not going to go too long on that, we talked for like two and a half hours about the movie, they fall into this category. You know, you've got the super fan, super nerds, like, I guess me... These days, Star Wars, you know, is well behind Marvel and just other sci-fi properties and The Lord of the Rings and so forth. But in terms of how much time I spend, you know, listening to podcasts and reading about it and having seen the original movie so many times, I think I saw Force Awakens four times in the theater. I may go for a fifth before it leaves because, again, it's never going to be the same. But they talked about how 
that middle ground between the super fans and then just the casual American fans who are loving this movie. You know, it's almost like the people who haven't really seen it since the 80s, except, you know, on TV here or there, they seem to love it the most. And that's what neutralizes the main criticism of this being too much like the original, both in terms of theme uh, as well as plot points, the way it sucked in or resucked in people who liked Star Wars back in the day who aren't Star Wars mega fans. It's the people in the middle, like my friends, who really like Star Wars and who follow some of the news, generally don't you know go for the spoilers. They might see it only once or twice in the theater, even if they liked it, which pretty much all my friends did, but they had the most reservations of anyone I've talked to, meaning people like my parents and sister and just other people I know who liked the originals and went into this with an open mind and loved it. General audience is loving it. As I said, nerds are loving it, but you know, between Starkiller Base, it being too similar to the original, some CGI and pacing problems at points, um, including the whole extended Maz Kanata thing, it's far from flawless. Now, to wrap this up, I'll say, firstly, as I was hinting at before, this is all about the characters. I love all the new characters. Kylo Ren is way cooler than I thought he was going to be. Adam Driver was spectacular. Ray was spectacular. Finn was spectacular. You know, Oscar Isaac wasn't in it a ton, but he was so good in his roles and they're definitely building him up to be a more major character in the future in terms of screen time it was just great to have the lead x-wing pilot be a, a real character and not just someone we see once and then they blow up i personally love the old cast stuff at first i was a little annoyed that no luke but thinking about it further it really sets up uh, episode eight great i personally love carrie fisher she's gotten a lot of criticism over the years for her weight issues and just being kind of crazy and having drug problems but she makes fun of herself she's done plays about her crazy life she's a you know a hollywood child you know lord knows what she went through growing up in hollywood as a kid and you know her acting felt exactly like her acting in return of the jedi and harrison ford as han solo from beginning to end from the time he first appears in the falcon till his untimely death at the hands of his son felt like han solo from 1977 to 1983 and yet somehow everyone loves han and people are just mediocre on carrie fisher now it's not a fair comparison because a harrison ford is a huge huge actor and has done a thousand more roles, you know, let's be honest, than Carrie Fisher, or at least big roles. B, the story revolves a little bit around him, and he's in most of the movie. He plays mentor to Finn and Rey, especially. The drama of the movie revolves around him. The passing of the torch. They just didn't give Carrie Fisher that much to do. She was the general, had a great couple of minutes with Harrison Ford. I thought, I loved the... You know, they won't even talk to each other, and then they're fighting immediately, or, you know, at least digging at each other. Um, As time went on, and they were hanging out, you know, I kept waiting for Han Solo to call um, Leia, you know, your worshipfulness, or whatever, but things were too serious, and they were too concerned about their son. And, you know, you had Carrie Fisher being the general, but... I was actually okay with that, especially because I think we're going to get more of her, or at least a more active role in the second movie. I mean, she has to make contact with Luke at some point, brother and sister. 
you know, they tease it essentially in the original trilogy. We don't even find out till like over halfway through the movie. She doesn't find out till almost the end of the movie. We don't see them have any conversations between the time Luke leaves her when they're with the Ewoks and, and Luke, you know, gets himself captured by Vader. We don't see them again till the very end celebrating and they, they hug and it's very brother-sisterly. So you know, we need to see more of that. I was fine with her. I thought she was great. I'm glad she didn't take the losing weight thing too personally. I think she's just been through everything at this point. She's like Hillary Clinton, you know? It's like she's bulletproof. Well, I think more people like Carrie Fisher than Hillary Clinton, but... uh it definitely, you know, satisfied the Star Wars itch and the urge. And as I talked about in the prequel commentaries, I think I only ended up releasing one for Phantom Menace because not that many people were into it, but I had a blast doing the prequels because when I was doing them, you know, it was getting very close to the release of Force Awakens. So I was talking about the old trilogy and the new trilogy and everything that went wrong in the prequels. But I do talk about, and have been talking about, really since when Bizzlecast was Cast before Bizzlecast was the thing, and I was just doing short little hits, talking a lot about Star Wars earlier on in 2015, which is the ritual cleansing. That was the most important thing. And for the super fans, you know, you have to see it more than once. I did my review on one viewing, but the jump of how much I liked it from the first to the second was huge. I like it more with each watching, but, you know, like the super fans, I felt mostly relief after the first viewing, and you never want that to be your primary goal or emotion when seeing a movie for the first time, but it's inevitable with Star Wars, and it's a great Star Wars movie, but I think the n- next ones are going to be even better. Uh, I think the standalone movies could actually end up being more interesting, if not make as much money, just because they're telling old stories from before the original trilogy, I believe, or at least during that time period. But also there's way less pressure to develop the, you know, main thread. They can just focus on storytelling, follow just a handful of characters. It doesn't have to be nearly as epic. It's like the same way that even though the Avengers made twice what Captain America Winter Soldier did, I know a lot of people who put Cap 2 ahead of the Avengers or at least neck and neck. I'm in that, but I would put Ultron there too. We'll get back to that. But, you know, sometimes it's nice to have epic scale movies where you only have a handful of characters. You got Cap and Black Widow and Falcon and Sammy J and uh, Kobe Smulders as Maria Hill. Um, So I think Felicity Jones, you know, leading a rogue squadron next year to get the Death Star plans will be really, really great. And as much as I love J.J., I'll end on this. I think his Star Trek reboot, the first one in 09, which I've done commentary on and talked about extensively, was a better movie. It was a little bit more restrained. The effects were more kind of visceral rather than fantastical. Star Wars, you need the fantasy aspect. And, you know, (laughs) when I was doing the Star Trek commentary, I just assumed at that point, this is a number of months before Force Awakens came out, I just assumed at that point that J.J. would do Star Wars better because he openly was a Star Wars fan and not a Star Trek fan growing up. He jumped at the opportunity to do, you know, Star Wars Episode Seven. Um, and I've, you know, hypothesized that that's why uh, the second Star Trek reboot uh, wasn't good. He might have been distracted by the Star Wars thing. But anyways, the reboot of 09 is so good. You know, I'm not going to say that Kirk and Spock, played by Chris Pine and Zachary Quinto, respectively, 
I'm not going to say that they were better or more compelling or lovable than Ray and Finn as the top duo, but I, I just thought the narrative worked better in Star Trek. They had way less to accomplish. You know, I, I mean, this is episode seven, that is. is it's a reboot. It's a remake, it, you know, but it, it's really starting a new franchise. And as they phase out the older players, it'll really be a new franchise. Whereas Star Trek had, you know, like 30, 40 years of history leading up to the reboot. And I think this is a case. And, you know, it's taken me a while in life to discover this. But the the Star Trek Star Wars thing with J.J. is a case where sometimes being more objective and less biased, you actually perform better. With Star Trek, yes, he didn't write it. They had people who were very familiar with Star Trek write it. But J.J. definitely put his pace and his aesthetic all over that movie. It almost helped him that he was unbiased and, you know, knew he had to please fans, but also knew that people were hungry for more. And and the Star Trek reboot made many times what the Star Trek Next Generation movies made in the 90s and early 2000s. And so for me, that's still my top J.J. movie. And as a lead out, because we don't really need to do numbers, Star Wars Episode Seven is, you know, almost at $2 billion. It very well may be past $2 billion by the time you hear this, but I'm looking forward to guys like Ryan Johnson directing Episode Eight. I mean, he's a very bizarre, dark director. He's already saying it's going to be darker and weirder. And so, you know, again, this was the movie to kind of wipe our <laughs> memories of the prequels and get the new universe going. And, you know, Ray and Finn, that's what it's all about. They're, they're going to, you know, take it to whatever heights they can get to. And Daisy Ridley, as I've been predicting for a very long time, based just on the trailers and interviews with her many months ago, I just had a feeling about her. <laughs> I bought a Ray poster. Um, it's not a photo. It's like a drawing of her on Jakku with, with BB-8. Uh, I bought it a couple months before the movie. I was that confident, you know. It's like buying a jersey. Um, of a new, you know, up-and-coming football or basketball player before they ever hit the professional court. But goddamn, did she deliver. And I'll end on that. If if you're putting your franchise on the shoulders of John Boyega, Oscar Isaac, Adam Driver, and especially Daisy Ridley, you're good to go. And in fact, I'll leave you with this little nugget. They're already revealing that they're redoing the script for episode eight. They were going to add like two or three major new characters, but they realize people love these characters and we still need to learn so much more about them that they're pairing back on the new characters. So they will be more like side characters, which I think is a good choice. Disney is rolling in money. I hope they're happy, even though they didn't beat Avatar. We'll see what happens. And there you have it, as according to the Bizzle. Now, I mentioned earlier in the podcast that I knew what the number one was going to be, and that two, three, and four um, could sort of go in any order. But the reality is, the number two movie, which I'm about to announce, after seeing it again on uh, Blu-ray, having not seen it since it was in the theater a bunch of months ago, not only was this the clear number two for me, Um, But in fact, (laughs) while watching the movie, I briefly questioned whether this should be the number one movie. Ultimately, I kept this one at number two, and I will explain why it is at two. And I'll also, when I get to my number one, um, explain why uh, number one stayed number one. But the number two movie, for which I've done uh, a really fun podcast with my father after we saw it in the theater, Papa Bizzle, is The Martian. 
The Martian, uh, directed by Ridley Scott, one of the all-time greats, and starring Matt Damon, one of the all-time greats, with a spectacular ensemble cast, which my father and I, in the Martian podcast, um, which was really a love fest, as we call it, uh, went through a lot of the characters in the ensemble, and I will talk about some of them here as well. But Damon plus Ridley on a $108 million budget, which seems impossible, considering it looks as good and is as epic as movies like Ultron um, and Jurassic World, which had budgets of more than twice as much as The Martian did, really made one of the all-time great sci-fi blockbuster epic movies. Now, if you want a full breakdown of The Martian and the dozens of reasons why it's so great, and as was confirmed by my recent watching the other day, is extremely rewatchable, it remains just as good and entertaining and touching and fun, you should listen to Bizzlecast 27, which was with Papa Bizzle, my dad. We talk a lot about the characters and the themes, but I wanted to start this one by talking about the logistical stuff, the money stuff. I usually save that for the end of both my top five podcasts here, but also my other podcasts. I usually try and save some of the box office stuff for the end and trying to kind of untangle what all those numbers mean. It just seems like a lot of money if you're sort of casually watching it. Now, The Martian, as most of you probably know, is based on a um, book of the same name, which just came out in the last few years by Andy Weir, who was a you know, brilliant um, you know, software designer um, or you know, just tech guy in general, did this as a hobby, couldn't get anyone to publish the book, it was a hard sci-fi book, hard sci-fi being sort of in the near future, but especially based on real science as much as possible. It's a very hard genre to do because you need to really know, you know, your science, but you also don't want to bore the readers. So Andy Weir started publishing chapters of his book on a website and was eventually picked up by Crown Publishing in uh, 2013, I believe released in 2014, which is amazing because, you know, the movie came out you know, less than two years after the book was um, published, let alone acquired. Now, Weir whose uh, dad was a particle physicist, or is a particle physicist, began uh, writing the book in 2009, researching all the material that he would need. As brilliant as he was, he needed to study orbital mechanics, astronomy, and the entire history of manned spaceflight. Now, science fiction fans <laughs> sort of became aware of the book before the publisher did, or before they took it seriously. And with uh, sort of, <laughs> you know, fan demand... Uh, he made an Amazon Kindle version available at 99 cents, which is the cheapest you can make a book, which is unbelievable now. Um, but 99 cents on Amazon. I did not know this at the time. I love science fiction, but there's so many works out there. It's hard for me to keep up, especially with something that's sort of a cult thing I never ran across. And the Kindle edition at 99 cents um, rose quickly to the top of Amazon's list of best-selling science fiction titles and sold 35,000 copies in three months, uh, more than had been previously downloaded free before it, it was on Amazon, eventually got the attention of publishers, and uh, he sold, uh, Andy Weir, that is, sold the print rights to Crown Publishing in March 2013 for six digits. It's over 100,000. I don't know how much more, but, you know, got a nice little bump there. And the uh, the bigger bump is now he's an established and super famous writer from the movie, and he's going to be writing full-time going forward, and that is great. I have a lot of friends, and even my dad, who don't normally read science fiction, who love the book, 
And that's a that's a tribute to Weir. Um, but the book is different from the movie. And I won't go into how it's different. Um, but the spirit of the book, in terms of sciencing the shit out of things, as Matt Damon talked about, and Matt Damon as sort of a real-life, modern-day, you know, science-y superhero, and the rescue mission and so forth, that's all from the book. The, the progression of the publishing of this book to it becoming a <laughs> two-thirds of a billion dollar uh, movie was on quite the fast track. Crown... As I mentioned, you know, licensed the book or bought the property from Weir in March 2013. Now, someone must have been in the know in the film industry because that same month, March 2013, when Crown picked up the book, Simon Kinberg, who's a big time uh, producer in Hollywood, um, does a lot of work for 20th Century Fox. Uh, which is, you know, eventually who put out The Martian. And I'll get back to the fact that despite the mixed record of both success, artistic and critical of, uh, you know, Fox properties, big blockbuster Fox properties in the past, for some reason, they always have an amazing special effects team. And that was needed even more so than ever because this movie got about, you know, half or two thirds of the budget uh, that it should have had and yet made it work. Uh, Simon Kinberg has been involved in the X-Men movies, the Fantastic Four movies. He was involved uh, as a writer and producer in X-Men Days of Future Past, um, one of the best Fox comic book movies to date, if not the best. Also involved with the Star Wars Rebels TV series, which has been very successful. Even though it's a cartoon, many adults watch it, and it's in continuity with Star Wars. He's involved with Deadpool, Gambit, and Apocalypse on 2016. So he's a big 20th Century Fox guy, and it was great that he got involved in that. Now, essentially what happened was they got Drew Goddard, who's also a rising star, um, mainly for you know creating and being the showrunner for Daredevil, which was a huge, huge success on Netflix. That if you're a Bizzlecast listener, you probably know that this is the case, and that Daredevil was supposed to be probably a one-off thing. They already had Jessica Jones and the other Defenders, uh, as they're called, lined up to have single seasons on Netflix, but within like two weeks, they optioned a second season uh, for Daredevil, and a year later, which is about two months from now, I'm recording end of January. A year later, they're releasing the second season of Daredevil. They basically went right back to work as soon as it was greenlit um, by Netflix slash Marvel. Drew Goddard was behind that, and he adapted Weir's novel into the screenplay. Great combination. Now, Goddard was supposed to direct as well, and no offense to him, because he's been doing great work as a producer, as a director, as a writer, on, on a number of different things, but you know, they needed really Scott to come in and make this movie happen because so many things could have gone wrong both on and off screen. And Ridley Scott, you know, being the consummate professional that he is, took on a property that's so different from anything he's ever done. Ridley Scott is known as a Hollywood director, a very skilled, famous, talented Hollywood director. His works are incredibly influential. I mean, you know, Alien in the late 70s basically created the modern horror sci-fi genre. Then you had Blade Runner in the early 80s create the modern uh, sci-fi AI genre. And then Gladiator, which did take its cues somewhat from Braveheart and older epic movies, um, really launched sort of the modern, you know, medieval, you know, historical epic movie in a lot of ways, at least aesthetically, if not thematically. But this is by far, you know, the most upbeat and optimistic, uh, you know, movie he's ever been involved with. And yet he brings his very visceral um, and exciting filmmaking style to it. 
and I talked about this on the Bizzlecast with my dad um, when we were talking about uh, the Martian Bizzlecast 27, that, you know, you go back to the late 70s, early 80s, and it's these incredibly dark, you know, dystopic uh, properties, and then you got all the historical tragedies with Gladiator and Kingdom of Heaven and so forth. But if you sort of chart his career... Um, and don't count Prometheus, uh, and you shouldn't, because Prometheus is terrible. Uh, I actually want to get back to Prometheus, perhaps, because that was an example of an ensemble cast gone wrong, which he very much fixed in The Martian. But if you start with Alien and make a, a, a beeline on, like, on a chart of you know depressing versus optimistic uh, themes in his movies... It really is, you know, almost a direct line to the feel goodness of The Martian, which had dark moments, which had a couple gruesome moments, but, you know, the difference between Alien and The Martian is just ridiculous. And the reason I say that is, you know, if, if Blade Runner was, you know, the most dystopic he ever got and became one of the most influential sci fi movies ever, but then you, you jump to, um, Gladiator and Kingdom of Heaven, and while they're very dark and bloody, both of those movies, um, I personally love Kingdom of Heaven. That was a case where the director's cut, it's like a different movie. If they had released that, it probably would have done better. Um, But the point is, (laughs) neither of those have particularly happy endings. At the end of Gladiator, spoiler alert, you know, Russell Crowe dies, but he does accomplish his goal of getting rid of Commodus, the evil son of of the Emperor, who was like a father to him, played by Joaquin Phoenix, and restore power to the senate and the creation of you know um or, or i should say the recreation of the republic of rome and the good you know the good guys win and uh and kingdom of heaven you know the christians who aren't really the good guys you know there, there's no uh, real good guys i guess it's it's really uh, more from the muslim perspective from sort of a moral ethical standpoint and that's what's brilliant is orlando bloom is one of the top you know lords and eventually becomes the, the general of the christian forces he identifies more with the muslims than with the christians ultimately jerusalem does fall to salah adin and the muslims as it did in real history and they are forced to flee but he does leave with a new love after his wife had died played by uh, eva green who had been the princess of jerusalem and all her family was dead and she lost her position and you know the uh the notion of jerusalem belongs to everyone and no one is the deep theme in the movie and the reason i bring this up is despite the tragedy um both the human scale and sort of the religious scale i suppose of a kingdom of heaven nevertheless has an ending which is somewhat hopeful you know salah hadin becomes very um, respectful and, and filled with admiration at Orlando Bloom's character um, because of his ability to see the complexity of the situation and know that it's about right and wrong and not what religion you are. And there's a great scene at the end where Salah Hadin is uh, coming back into Jerusalem after they nearly destroyed it to get it back, um, slash and burn, and he's fixing the, I think it's the Dome of the Rock, or it might be the Al-Aqsa Mosque, um, and going through the various cathedrals. And he finds a, uh, a cross on the ground. And rather than discard it, he, you know, with, with great reverence, picks up this beautiful cross and sets it back in place, which, you know, really sums up what the movie's about, which is that we can be different and yet, you know, still come to the same place if our hearts are in the right place. So to get back to The Martian... 
you know, this takes that way, way further. I mean, Ridley Scott, without a villain, it's unbelievable. I mean, there's no bad guys in the movie. I mean, Jeff Daniels, the hard-ass director of NASA, Teddy Sanders, butts heads with Chiwetel Ejiofor and Sean Bean and other characters because he's kind of conservative. He doesn't want to take any more risks than they've already taken. He's never really going to be a bad guy. And when he gets outsmarted towards the end, uh, he tries to clamp down a possible rescue mission plan um, to save Matt Damon, which would require slingshotting the uh, other Mars team people who had left him thinking he was dead. They're almost home to Earth. They would have to slingshot all the way back to Mars, you know, and, and end up <laughs> having to perform a ridiculous maneuver uh, to get Matt Damon off the planet and onto their ship and adding, you know, 300 more days in space, they were going to be in space like eight or nine hundred days, but you know, in the space culture and the military culture, it leave no man behind. And Sean Bean goes behind Jeff Daniels' back. Sean Bean plays sort of the flight director, he's the guy that interacts with the crew. She uh, would tell Edgy for being sort of between the two of them, being in charge of the Mars mission in general, Sean Bean, you know, um, covertly gets the uh, Rich Purdell maneuvers, as they call them. Uh, Rich Purdell, hilariously played by Donald Glover, um, you know, the young, brilliant, weird, funny, you know, comedic, brilliant genius at, at JPL. He comes up with this thing. Sean Bean gets it to the crew of the Hermes ship and going against NASA's direct orders immediately changes course after uh, Kate Mara, who's great and adorable, who plays the science uh, nerd chick, hacks into the system so that NASA can't, uh, you know, remotely control and, and reorient um, the uh, position and velocity and so forth of the Hermes ship. And they go back and they get Matt Damon. But in the end, they all come together. I mean, you know, they managed to get China on board. China volunteers to help, which is going to cost them money. They give up technology and Jeff Daniels and Sean Bean's characters. They go to China and are there during the duration of this whole plan and watching the launch and, you know, the two of them kind of men fences. And it's all about the human spirit. It's all about working together. And, you know, I'm not going to go character by character. I think the young characters in this movie really set it up. Part. I mean, when you've got, you know, Daniels and Ejiofor and Sean Bean and Matt Damon and, you know, all these, these veteran actors, that's almost enough. But when you talk about world building, it's the um, small to medium characters in, in terms of time on screen that are really the most important, assuming you nail the the leads, which when you have big-time actors and a big-time director and a great script is going to happen. You have uh, Donald Glover, as I mentioned, as the uh, you know brilliant JPL super genius who's too young and too smart and comes up ultimately with the way that, to uh, save everybody. Um, uh, side note, Donald Glover has a great voice and sings on the Creed soundtrack. And he has a lot of comedic stuff online as well. Brilliant young actor and comedian. But little things too. You know, you have Mackenzie Davis as uh, uh, Mindy Park, who starts off as just a regular operator of telescopes at, you know, at Mission Command, at, at, at Command Central NASA in Houston. But when Chiwetel Ejiofor, who I guess they had a professional relationship with each other, as Vitsa Kapoor, the head of the Mars mission, asks her to uh, look at some telescopic images 
over sort of a one to two month span on Mars, she's the one that finds that, you know, things have been moving. And so if, if Mark Watney, played by Matt Damon, the lead character, uh, were dead, you know, the dishes shouldn't be getting clean, the rover shouldn't be moving all over the place. And that's why long before they're able to establish contact with him, they know that he's alive. And then it's sort of a debate of what they can do, what they should do, how much they should reveal. They try and keep it secret from uh, Matt Damon's teammates for many months, which he's not happy about and uses numerous F-bombs, both real and implied. And, uh, you know, but that's where the teamwork starts working. But, but yeah, Mackenzie Davis, great. And she's one of those characters that just is more and more appealing the more you watch it. And that's why I always love ensemble TV and movies the best, because there's always a character that jumps out that hadn't jumped out at you before when the ensemble's that good, whether it's The Wire or Battlestar Galactica on television or in the movies, the Avengers movies or The Martian. The giant team movies are always the ones I love, the X-Men movies, or at least the good X-Men movies, because... You know, in real life, you are defined not just by who you are, but how you interact with other people. And by the end of the movie, the whole freaking world is trying to help figure out how to get Watney home. As Watney says, all the brain power on the planet uh, was, you know, working together to try and help him. So that includes uh, Rich Purnell, played by Glover, Mackenzie Davis's character, Mindy Park, who immediately gets a promotion, uh, as I meant to get to, and these are the little character-building things. She's young, she's sweet, she's cute, she's clearly smart and perceptive, um, and she's actually the catalyst. I mean, she happened to be in the right place at the right time, but she, she made the right observations that led to the extended um, <laughs> and multi-layered uh, efforts to get Matt Damon um, or uh, Mark Watney, I should say, home. And she really develops over the movie without saying hardly a thing. You know, she becomes more confident. Uh, at first, she like can barely speak around you know the superiors of NASA. I mean, everyone would be intimidated by Jeff Daniels, which is why the Rich Purnell bit, uh, the Council of Elrod, where he's, you know, zooming the fake spaceship around the room to describe his plan, and Jeff, you know, and Jeff Daniels is just so disgusted by the lack of respect of of uh, him by by this kid, although he grudgingly has to admire the, the you know, ingenuity of, of uh, Rich Purnell, Mindy Park, you got... And, you know, Mindy Park develops a relationship with Edufor because, you know, they're working together with the telescopes. She gets promoted to be basically in charge of the telescope aspect of the whole operation, which is extremely important. Um, it's not just, you know, some average telescope operator. And you know, she's always putting up with Vitsa Kapoor's, uh, you know, sort of bizarre... Uh, jokes or, or or just uh theories or you know whatnot i mean because you know edgy four is really running this whole rescue thing he's getting no sleep he's traveling between nasa and jpl in california constantly um and that brings me to you know the, the comedic heart of the movie uh along with rich purnell uh, donald glover's character who is bruce ng played by benedict wong who was just announced to be the sidekick uh to Doctor Strange in November, played by Benedict Cumberbatch. That is a brilliant duo right there, I think, comedically. You know, he's this big, chubby, Asian-American dude who's overworked, who, you know, who never wants to say we can't get it done, but, you know, has these impossible tasks to achieve, but is just tireless in, in, in making them happen. And then, 
you know, is connected mostly through watching the television uh, monitor, which is part of what, and this will be an example of Ridley's brilliant uh, filmmaking, Ridley Scott, that is, which is, you know, Bruce would be funny just normally, but because we mostly see him from NASA and Houston watching him on a, you know, on a big screen monitor while they're communicating, you get the office sort of effect where he's speaking into the camera because that's what you do, you know, with your video conferencing with someone. So we see him through the video conference and his, you know, his subtle physical humor and facial gestures are just absolutely hysterical. And the reason I want to highlight this, and I'm going to wrap on The Martian because you can listen again to Bizzlecast 27, is he's so human and he ends up being connected to the Chinese Space Agency and all this stuff. It's really hilarious. Uh, but I'll just end on the fact that, uh, you know, however many changes they made to the adaptation um, into the screenplay completely worked. There was no character I didn't like, and I really loved most, if not all, of them. As I mentioned in my podcast with my father, and I haven't really talked about Matt Damon. He's worthy of the Academy Award. I'm sorry, Leo. I know Leo had to go through more physically for The Revenant, uh, but this is, uh, you know, a really special performance and just different. A lot of people have played, you know, that sort of surviving in the woods thing that Leo's doing. This is very different. And $108 million, they had to build this giant, you know, like... 30 or 40 room set or something in Hungary, I believe. And, they, you know, they took some shots of uh, Jordan, like in the desert, to kind of model in the background and used with the green screens. And then they, you know, modeled it using satellite imagery, actual satellite imagery from Mars. Matt Damon killed it on his end. But as I mentioned in the, the Bizzle Castle, Pablo Bizzle, uh, what's going on on Earth is almost more interesting just because of the teamwork. They have to get so creative, as does Matt Damon, obviously. I mean, he's the one that's there. So he has to start an idea, and then they push it forward. And I'll end on two themes really quickly. And one is just a shout-out to my dad, because he came up with this uh, term, or, or I should say, uh, you know, this description or tagline which is that watching The Martian, there is a type of you know, radically optimistic can-do humanism that oozes out of the pores of the movie, as my dad put it. And you know, it's a superhero movie um, that's really a superhero movie without having to have an actual DC or Marvel superhero movie. And uh, you know, it, it brings to life a, a believable near-future scientific utopia of global cooperation and single-minded devotion towards the preservation of human life and the uplift of all humanity. I could go on with this all day. I'm about at the limit. Again, listen to Bizzlecast 27, really get into the details of characters and themes, but I just wanted to talk about sort of the production process on this one um, uh, because I haven't really done so with the previous films. Again, this would easily be number one in any other year, and it's so different from my number one that you know I almost want to make a tie, but the only reason number one beats this is because... Well, you're going to have to listen to number one. So before then, congratulations to The Martian. Very well done, uh, to say the least. I'm going to see this a lot on Blu-ray. Oh, and just to close, I was going to say, you know, for Ridley Scott, you know, Gladiator got best film, you know, but he didn't get a best director nod for Gladiator, which he should have. 
Um, he may have been nominated, and I think he got to share the award of the because he's a producer. He got to share the Gladiator uh, producer award for best picture. You know, he's never won. It's like Scorsese before The Departed. I mean, this guy's going to go down as well. He's certainly one of the top five living uh, and active directors. He's going to go down as one of the best ten to twelve ever for sure. Um, maybe in the top three to five, just because of the influence and how much on the cutting edge uh, he is in movies, even in movies like Prometheus, which fall on their face, but do attempt big issue, um, you know, discussions. But to not get nominated <laughs> as a director for The Martian is, is really inexcusable. Even if you give him a bump, like let's say he was, you know, on the bubble tied with a couple other directors for that fourth or fifth spot, he should have gotten the bump just for being his late 70s and being such an amazing director. Hopefully they'll give him you know, a Lifetime Achievement Award or something. I don't really care about the Oscars at this point, other than being insulted that you know movies like The Martian, uh, well, it did get you know, a number of nominations, including Best Picture, and Matt Damon um, would love for it to get Best Picture. Ridley Scott was a primary producer on this. You know, I, I know he would like to get the Director Award, but you know, to have two of your movies... Gladiator, and if The Martian, even though it's an underdog, can pull it off, have two of your movies win Best Picture, you know, 15, 16 years apart is pretty amazing. So I'm rooting for Ridley Scott. I'm rooting for the production team and all the production awards. Definitely rooting for Matt Damon. I hope Ridley Scott's not done. I hope he lives, you know, a long, happy, healthy life for many, many more years. But if this is the last major film project he gave us, it is such a gift. I hope people are appreciative about how much of a gift this is. So that's The Martian. Number two, missed one by a hair, and we're about to get into it. But congratulations to The Martian and to uh, Matt Damon and especially Ridley Scott and the whole cast and crew. Bravo, folks. All right, people, you made it. We made it together. The number one Hollywood blockbuster film of the year is Creed. Now, <laughs> if you know me at all, either in real life or you follow me on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or so forth, or are even just a listener of the Bizzlecast, and even if you didn't listen to um, what's about to become my best uh, listened podcast or most listened podcast ever, Bizzlecast 35, where I talk Creed, but also Rocky in general with my cousin Phil, who is a huge Rocky fan and really a scholar. Um, and we spent as much time talking about the history of Rocky and the legacy as about Creed and how much we loved it. But even if you didn't listen to that, <laughs> I've been, you know, leaving breadcrumb trails uh, all over the place. And the Bizzlecast, it's certainly online. My avatar on both Twitter and Facebook, I believe, is uh, Creed, um, played by Michael B. Jordan in The Final Battle. But as I mentioned in The Martian, um, which you probably just listened to, at number two slot for Blockbuster Movie of the Year, before I saw Creed, it was definitely The Martian. And as soon as I saw Creed, especially for the second viewing and other subsequent viewings, it was obvious to me that it was Creed in the top slot. And Creed is the best film on my list, my favorite of the year, uh, definitely the best blockbuster film of the year, but it bucks the trend in a number of ways, with not just the other films on my list, but other movies that have made the $100 million mark, which it did domestically. It's almost at $50 million abroad, but Creed simultaneously feels like a Hollywood movie and an indie flick at the same time. With a $35 million budget, that does not guarantee, you know, uh, making $100 million 
million or more, either domestically or abroad. That's for sure. We've seen that many, many times. And, you know, this is Rocky Seven in a way, although I'll talk about how I think, you know, calling it Rocky Seven, it's almost like not taking it seriously enough. But for Rocky fans, it's a compliment. And I've come to see it as that as well. So I'm cool with it being Rocky Seven, but it's Rocky and it's Sylvester Stallone. But while I did the aforementioned podcast uh, about Creed slash Rocky with my cousin Phil, which thank you, BizzleCast listeners, for making it so popular and so well listened to. It's going to hit 300 soon, which is very exciting, especially for one I only released um, you know, a month or two ago. And it's definitely worth a listen if you haven't gone there yet. Um, even if you haven't seen Creed, just because of the history lesson about Stallone and boxing movies and Rocky and Philadelphia and all this stuff... So I'm going to talk about something new here, and this is really a development since I did the podcast, which is while Michael B. Jordan, the lead actor, and the director, Ryan Coogler, um, who teamed up for Fruitvale Station a couple of years ago in 2013, a very dark and, you know, quote-unquote small but very disturbing true story about a young black man who was murdered by a, a policeman at Fruitvale Station in Oakland, which I was just at recently and was able to take a picture, but... They did a great job on the historical parts of the movie, but I didn't love everything about Fruitvale Station. The first half was a little too sentimental for me. It was a little too on the nose. It was like, oh, he's saving a dog. Oh, he loves his family. Oh, he's trying to get his life together. And Coogler, which was, that was really his first big film break, did a wonderful job of directing it. Won a lot of awards, turned a lot of people's heads. If you didn't know Michael B. from The Wire or Friday Night Lights, you definitely knew him after that. They're so young. I mean, Ryan Coogler's 29 now, which means he was like 25 in pre-production of Fruitvale, which, you know, is impressive in and of itself. But they teamed up together, and I said that Creed feels a little bit like an indie movie, and that's because of those two guys, and especially their work together in Fruitvale Station, which was an indie movie. And so the director and writer, Ryan Coogler, somehow managed to take a Rocky franchise, which, you know, hasn't put out good movies really since the early 80s, essentially, uh, which, you know, is still beloved by people, especially in Philadelphia, where I live, where Rocky is a, a hero and an icon, even though he's, you know, technically fictional they have a statue to him people run up the steps like rocky all the time it's a classic movie i don't think anyone thought that they could reboot it i don't think anyone thought they could have elicited the performance uh from stallone that he gives as a supporting character in this movie the other big issue <laughs> to have come to uh, light since my podcast with phil as i was getting to is the awards issue and how for the academy awards None of the black actors or the director or writer uh, got nominated for an award. Now, Sylvester Stallone did, but this is a much bigger problem than just Creed because there wasn't a single black person nominated for any of the 20 acting awards or the Five Direction awards. And Creed just happens to be the one who's going to suffer most egregiously this year. Now, I am going to be doing a podcast about racism in Hollywood in the Academy recording this week. Uh, I'm recording this uh, Tuesday, January 26th. This will probably come out first, just so I get my favorites out. So I, I don't want to you know, spend too much time on the, uh, on the racism aspects uh, surrounding this movie. Or even if you're not convinced, it is pure racism behind this, which is fine. There are certainly racism issues behind all of this that one i think anyone could and would acknowledge wherever you fall 
um, politically um, or socially or so forth. But, you know, I monitor my podcast very closely, how many hits they're getting, which parts of the world they're getting hits from, uh, when it spikes. And when the controversy started about the lack of love for Creed in the Academy, the podcast uh, with my cousin Phil about Creed slash Rocky, although it had already been doing very well, and I'll get back to why I think you know that podcast is going to be my most listened to. It's not a coincidence. It definitely got a bump from all the controversy swirling. So I've got a lot of stuff to talk about that doesn't just cover the same ground as with my cousin. I'm going to jump back to that earlier point really quickly. The point about you know how do you get a movie that is both Hollywood and indie, at least in feeling, with a really old franchise and a really old actor that's way past his prime, but with a black director and a black lead, both of whom are acclaimed within the industry, and anyone who you know watches good film or television knows these guys, but aren't widely known by your sort of you know average movie watcher or whatever. But the movie did everything right, both on and off screen, for its critical acclaim, for its ability to make a reasonable, you know, sum of money for sure. Um, I mean, you know, it's not Avatar on a $35 million budget to make $150 um, and still be going up. It's very impressive. And they did all the little things right. With the marketing, I mean, they had the movie come out in late November, you know, which is where you want it for for Oscar uh, consideration. And in fact, you know, if you take out the, you know, the race controversy with all this or whatever, it's still mind-blowing because it is better than a number of the movies on that list. I've seen every movie in the Best Picture list, I think, other than The Revenant. And I know what The Revenant is going to be like if I ever see it. Creed is definitely better than Bridge of Spies and Brooklyn and, you know, definitely Mad Max, whatever your criteria are. So, you know, they put it in the right place. They had a great marketing campaign. They had a number of different trailers, all of which were different, um, it, you know, the science behind trailers is, especially these days, where with action trailers, you know, and Hollywood blockbuster trailers, they all sound and look the same. Essentially, you know, they really flipped the formula on its head. They didn't just regurgitate stuff from one trailer to the next. Now there are two main trailers, and the time of release and the way they were marketed. Maybe it's just the type of movies, you know, I go see. I can't remember off the top of my head where I saw it. But, you know, unlike most quote-unquote black movies where you only see those trailers at other quote-unquote black movies, Creed was showing at a lot of blockbuster movies. I think The Martian, they had it, uh, some other ones. And it gave you chills. I mean, I haven't seen Rocky in forever. You know, I knew the first movie well just because, you know, it's such a classic and I probably watched it a bunch back in the day. I hadn't seen the other Rocky movies in forever. Now, after Creed, I went back and watch Rocky uh, 1 through 4, which are the only four that people really have in continuity, I suppose, and that the movie has in continuity. But anyways, you could tell from the trailer that there was something special going on between Michael B. and Sylvester Stallone. And the uh, the people at uh, Warner Brothers or MGM or whoever's really behind it, uh, you know, did the smart thing with the trailers. They released, I think, three total trailers, but two full-length ones. And I'm not including any TV spots. The first one was released on June 30th, 2015. And Stallone doesn't even show up till like almost halfway through the trailer. There's hardly any Stallone. It's all Michael B. Jordan, which is very gutsy. 
I don't know if they made the decision with the second trailer to have more Stallone, you know, beforehand or just that people, you know, weren't relating to it without more Stallone. But even in the second one where they introduce uh, the relationship between Michael B um, as Adonis uh, Creed and Sylvester Stallone as Rocky Balboa, we see, you know, that Rocky gets sick and, and we see some of the development in their relationships and, you know, it, it's a perfect example how if you go back to the trailer and watch it now, you're like, oh, my God, they quickly showed some of the, like, biggest moments of the movie, but they go by so fast. And with, you know, Michael B. and or Stallone, you know, speaking over the trailer about their lives or their, you know, their philosophies of boxing or whatever, you know, you just don't realize that. And both trailers have great hip hop tracks behind them. And that's a big part of the movie is the music. Uh, I've gone on at length about this, both on and off mic, um, but combining a really great uh, orchestral score, which is really just an updated Rocky score with some excellent hip hop choices. And then a couple of tracks and key scenes, putting the orchestra and the hip hop together really makes the movie in a way that I can only compare to the original Star Wars in some ways in the sense of, you know, a spectacular um, cinematic achievement that isn't spectacular just because of the music. Um, but if you take out the music and put in nothing or, or something mediocre, it would really change how you see it. Because it's not just that there's a lot of music in the movie. In fact, Kugler is very restrained in having poignant silences, extended silences. Um, it's usually when running around, you know, with the Rocky movies, you got to train, you got to be running around, you got to be running around Philly, seeing different Philly spots, which they loved in Philadelphia. It was awesome to watch the movie multiple times with Philly crowds in Philadelphia. In fact, you know, the Eagles were so bad when the movie uh, came out that every time I saw it, he runs by an Eagles bridge and everyone starts booing. It's hilarious. It's so Philadelphia. So you have the training music and, and it's a mix of hip hop and the orchestral and they do that in the trailers. It is a black movie, and I mean this, you know, in the best and hopefully least offensive way possible. Stallone, yes, it's his property, and it's a continuation or at least a branch off of the story and universe that he brilliantly created and has been a part of for so many decades, but, you know... If it was difficult to recruit him, I know he had a little trouble at first ending back and not, you know, doing too much other than just be a supporting actor, Sylvester Stallone, that is. The bulk of both trailers is Michael B. Jordan training and doing his thing and talking about how difficult his life and legacy are uh, and have been. Um, and you throw in Tessa Thompson, a, a real musician with a great voice and sound, who's also um, a great actress as his girlfriend in the movie. You know, I think we see Tessa more, at least in one of the trailers, if not both, than uh, than Stallone. And to have her name, you know, be one of the three names in the big font on the screen during the trailer with Stallone and the actual lead character Michael B. Jordan is awesome. But then you scroll down um, on YouTube to. Uh, oh, I'm sorry, I forgot to mention, the second trailer uh, was September uh, 14th, 2015. So they spaced it out three months apart. The second trailer came out two months before the movie. Had uh, more Rocky stuff. Uh, but, you know, you look at the description and it says, Sylvester Stallone and Michael B. Jordan star in Creed. And, and, and that's, you know, the beginning of the race talk. Now, you could easily say that it's just that Stallone is or at least was bankable and they're hoping that he was still bankable uh, that they would put michael b second i guess they're just trying to grab people's eyes i don't want to you know overanalyze the description 
uh, on YouTube, but this is the, the official, you know, Warner Brothers, you know, site or whatever. And in the trailer, they did the right thing, which was say, this movie is about Adonis Creed. It's about Apollo Creed's son. It's Michael B. Jordan. It's about all his relationships. Rocky's the biggest and most important, and it's still in that world. But we get that with music. We get that with some Sylvester Stallone. Uh, and it's great. And they nailed it. They released it at the right time, and they didn't get any love. They won other awards. And, you know, you just move on. The indie part of this movie, as I was talking about, has to do with the way it's shot and directed, um, as well as written and acted. It's extremely minimalist without feeling, you know, too sparse or too empty. You know, they take a universe that already exists, the Rocky universe, that's mostly in line with ours, especially since Rocky is a, you know, as aforementioned, Rocky is a hero in the real world as well as in uh, the movie. Uh, but anyways... There's no scene or piece of dialogue that feels out of place. Um, there's no shot that is excessive. You know, it, it, unlike in Fruitvale Station, it's clear Kugler learned some lessons. I'm not saying he needed to learn lessons because, you know, Fruitvale was still a great movie. Um, but he did, I think, see, looking back on it, and just with the experience, and I think working with Stallone, who, quick side note, even though it took him a little while you know, to sort of hand over the reins, once he did, they, they had him consulting on a set a, a lot. I mean, I've seen a lot of behind-the-scenes stuff, and Kugler and Michael B. and Stallone are always chatting, the three of them, even when Stallone isn't directly in the scene. Uh, so they definitely brought him into the process, but Ryan Kugler learned that you can let the imagery in the story do the emotion building, if you will, meaning don't play on people's emotions or don't play to them. Just tell a story that's touching and full of three-dimensional characters. We learned that Tessa Thompson, his beautiful girlfriend, who's a great singer, has progressive hearing loss. Rocky has cancer, you know, and Michael B. Jordan has to go to pretty great lengths to get Stallone to actually take the chemotherapy treatment, because at that point, Stallone just wants to die. You know, his, his wonderful wife, Adrian, um, you know, who was played, you know, legendarily by Talia Shire in the 70s and 80s, had died. He felt like he had nothing left, and even training this kid, but when he realized how important it had become to this kid and how much he cared for him, agreed to take the treatment, and so the movie gets flipped on his face in numerous ways, because not only is, you know, Rock, you know, Rocky Balboa, the champ, Rock, you know, doing the training and not the fighting, but he realized, especially towards the end, when Michael B. has to keep him going and keep his spirits up and get, and get the treatment, that it's a two-way mentoring relationship. They're learning from each other. And I'm glad after the final fight, uh, which was expertly done as an action scene, and it was really just, you know, candy a after an hour and 45 minutes of, of brilliant filmmaking. You had to have that final uh, fight, and uh, they did it great. But, you know, after the fight, you know, the, Rocky's on the mic, uh, you know, with HBO or whoever being interviewed because everyone knows who Rocky Balboa, you know, is and was within this mythos. And as the trainer of, of Adonis Creed, who just fought this huge match, and he, he talks about how thankful, you know, he is for what Michael B is doing for him and helping him fight, just as he's teaching Michael B to fight. You know, as Michael B says, you know, I'm not doing uh, this fight. I'm not, you know, going forward with it unless you get your treatment. So if I fight, you fight. And that's, that's the whole movie. We fight together. We all have our own battles, often multiple battles. And, uh, you know, th probably the, the most chill-worthy moment of the movie is during the final boxing match 
when Adonis or, or Donnie Creed, uh, played by Michael B. Jordan, I, I, you know, it's only one or two rounds left in the fight. It's like the 11th or their 12th round. And, you know, one eye is completely shut. The other one has blood all over it. He's getting his ass kicked. He'd been knocked to the ground a couple times already. And in a callback to Rocky Four, which is the one great thing, really, of Rocky Four, was the death, the killing and the death in the ring of um, Adonis' father, Apollo Creed, the legendary Apollo Creed, took on, you know, the steroid-filled Drago from Russia, the rest of the movie wasn't so great, but early on he takes him on, is very cocky, and literally gets killed by the boxer in the ring. And that's what informs the entire Creed storyline in the background uh, in the mythology of the Creed series going forward. It's not just Rocky. It's not just Creed. They're together. They're, they're, they're both parallel and perpendicular. And it's like a delta crossing paths, making new paths. But... Rocky says, you know, at the end of round 11, Adonis is basically dead on his feet. And Rocky says, I should have stopped this fight, you know, when when your dad was there. And, you know, I should have stopped that fight and I'm going to stop this one. And just like Creed did, and again, you have to have seen Rocky four. You know, Apollo says in that same situation, no, I want to finish this. And then he gets killed. And so it's all, you know, coming full circle. It's like a time loop. Adonis, same situation, could get killed in the 12th round with his, you know, opponent who's way bigger, stronger, and more experienced than him. And Rocky says, I'm stopping the fight. And Adonis is saying the same thing. He says, no, don't stop this fight, please. And Rocky says, why? And Michael B. Jordan, with, you know, one of a thousand moments of brilliant acting in the movie, pauses and looks both determined but sad and says... I need to know that I wasn't a mistake because he was the product of a very a short um, you know, affair that Apollo apparently had shortly before his death. We're led to believe at the beginning of the movie when we see young Adonis that he did not know who his father was. He had been growing up in group homes and juvie because his dad and mom died. Uh, well, no, his dad died before he was born. And then his mom, whoever the woman was in the affair whose last name was Johnson, which is why he starts the movie with the last name Johnson. So when Donis is adopted at the beginning of the movie by Creed's wife, or widow, I should say, who's not his biological mother, but she had tracked him down, and, you know, it's like the last living heir, or at least the youngest living heir, wanted to take care of him. She could provide. She had money from Apollo, even though he had died a long time ago, and we find out that young Adonis didn't know his father was Creed. And the whole movie is him dealing with that. And so when he says to Rock in the ring at the end, don't stop this, I, I, you know, I, I need to know that I wasn't a mistake. There's a lot wrapped up in that line. And you have to see them looking at each other in their faces and how they respond to each other. But Rocky's really ready to stop that fight. But when he hears that, he knows he can't. He knows... As much as he's tried to guide Donnie into his own legacy, but to not be ashamed of his past or his father or his father's infidelities or just not being there for him, he sees in Adonis' eyes that he needs this. And not only that, the grit and determination to fight one more round and survive. And I'm assuming all of you have seen Creed. I won't ruin the result of the fight, but I will say, you know, in the final round after that big talk, um, between R- Rock and uh, and Adonis, uh, Creed, you know, knocks this huge monster down when you don't really see it coming. 
But when uh, Adonis says, I, I need to know that I'm not a mistake before that round starts, Rocky looks him in the eye, gets that mischievous smile on his face that we've seen a couple times in the movie whenever he's getting one over um, and his heart opens to Donnie and he you know, gives a final pump-up speech and he says, look, you know, when I was out of it, your father helped me, brought me to L.A., you know, trained me, got me back into it, you know, got my head back on my shoulders and moving forward with my life. He says, that's nothing compared to what you've done for me, meaning Adonis helping Rocky, not just with the cancer, but with bringing him back to the world. And one of the final thoughts I'll leave, and the scene that I think really sums up what's great about the movie but also about Stallone's performance, and he was nominated, and I do not want to neglect the fact that Stallone is nominated and is currently the favorite for Best Supporting Actor at the Oscars, which is why Michael B. Jordan and Ryan Coogler, you know, they, they can't protest uh, or boycott the Oscars, unfortunately, because their, their uh, film mate is in there, and they got a root for him. Um, but early in the movie, when... Uh, um, Adonis decides he's going to leave a financial job um, in LA. It's important and great that even though he grew up like in juvie and bouncing around between homes and being not the best kid, you know, by being adopted by Creed's widow, got a great education and doing a great job. Although he was moonlighting on weekends, you know, boxing in Mexico where he just knocked, you know, one person after another out. It was professional technically, but you know, it, it was a limited pool. Um, and it takes a while before he can fight a real fighter, decides to move to Philadelphia and find Rocky. And they never say that that's what he's going to do. You just know it before it happens. If you've just seen the trailers and when it happens, it makes total sense. And he has to go to Rocky a few times to get him to agree. First time he comes to the restaurant, um, Rocky's restaurant, Adrian's, and is looking at pictures of Sylvester Stallone uh, fighting Carl Weathers, who played Apollo Creed. Uh, I believe it was from the second movie. It was their second bout, the one that Rocky did win, the rematch. And he starts talking about all these things he knows about Rocky and about, you know, Apollo Creed. And, and you know, uh, Sylvester Stallone just plays it perfectly. Eh, how do you know all this stuff, you know? And he... And uh, Adonis reveals that, you know, he's the son and wants Rocky to train him. Rocky says, I don't do that anymore. So what does Adonis do? He gives him a little smile and he starts training at uh, Mighty Mix Gym, which goes back to the original Rocky where Rocky trained. Mix, obviously, no longer alive, but the gym is still going. And he's trying to train himself like he's always done. He talks about in the movie, you know, up until the time Rocky agrees to help him. He says, every punch I've ever thrown has been on my own. You know, I have no training. I'm self-taught. So he continues that. And then, like, the next day, he goes to Rocky's place and helps him unload all the stuff from the food truck into the basement for the restaurant. And while he's doing that, he's trying to butter up, uh, you know, but butter up Rocky again. And, and Rocky kind of sees what's going on and calls, you know, calls him a woodpecker always, you know, peck, 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 peck. Um, as a compliment for his persistence, and it was important that Adonis, uh, you know, set up his persistence as one of his many great characteristics, both in and out of the ring. And he's and Rocky again says, "I'm sorry, kid. I just don't want to do it." And uh, Adonis is like, oh, "Okay, well, you know, just could you give me a few drills? That'll be it. I'll never say anything again, you know." And you already know he's going to try again if he has to. And so Rocky gives him a bunch of drills, and it's this hilarious bit where. 
you know, Adonis takes a picture of it with his uh, his iPhone and hands the sheet back to to Stallone, back to Rocky, and Rocky goes, well, wait, don't you need this? And Adonis holds up his phone. He says, "No, I, I got it right here." And and uh, and Rocky goes, well, "What if you lose it or it breaks or something?" And Adonis says, "Oh, it's already in the cloud." <laughs> and you know it's coming, but brilliantly delivered by Sylvester Stallone. He looks up. He looks up. And, you know he's looking for clouds, and he just goes, "What cloud? What cloud?" You know, I mean, perfect moment of technology of, you know, 2015 meets uh, the mind of Rocky from the 70s, as we also saw earlier uh, that Adonis is constantly watching YouTube videos of Rocky and Apollo's fights and shadowboxing them and so forth. Great use of technology. But the scene I'm talking about is uh, after that scene, you know, we still don't know if Rocky's going to bite on this. And it's probably the next day after that. And he goes to the cemetery and again, brilliant writing and filmmaking. What does he do? Reaches up to the nearest tree and pulls down an old, you know, wooden fold-out chair that he must have had stashed up there for like a really long time. The grave side by side. There's Adrian, of course, his love, Yo Adrian, and uh, and Polly, his problematic brother-in-law. And it's Polly's birthday, so he bought Polly some liquor, which thankfully Polly's not allowed to drink, because uh, as Sly says, um, you know, he's my best friend, not so friendly. And then he he puts the chair right in front of Adrian's grave. I mean, this is great. We don't see Talia Shire, but Adrian's a character in the movie. Puts the chair in front of Adrian's grave. Pulls out the newspaper, says, you know, what, what's in the news today? He's talking about his, you know, his daily problems to Adrian, you know, who's, who's lying dead there in the grave. And you can tell he's done this a whole lot of times. And, you know, he doesn't get like one paragraph into the paper. And he sort of puts it down. He looks up to the sky, kind of, you know, gets that mischievous smile, that gleam in his eye. And, uh... I think I knew when I saw the movie that <laughs> that was him going, God damn it, I got to help this kid. I want to help this kid. Um, I need to. And, uh, and it's a great scene where, you know, uh, Rocky comes back to Mick's gym for the first time in forever, and, and everyone there either knows him or knows of him, wants to shake his hand. He's very gracious. He's a legend. They call him the champ. You know, he's Rocky. He's Rocky fucking Balboa. And uh, and he's starting to talk with, with Leo, who's the, now the lead trainer there, who seems like a good guy in the beginning, uh, pulls a sort of, you know, low blow later by revealing Creed's identity because uh, Leo's uh, son... Um, I'm sorry, not Leo. Leo's the son. The father's Pete Spirino. The son's Leo Spirino is an up-and-coming light heavyweight boxer in the same class as um, as Adonis is. <laughs> and, you know, without even waiting for the, uh, Rocky to stop talking to the Spirinos, you know, from across the room, uh, you know, uh, Donnie sees uh, Rock and is just like, hey, Unc! You know, he's calling him Unc like Uncle throughout the movie before Stallone even knows what's going on. And Pete goes, he talking to you? And sarcastically, Stallone goes, yeah, I think so. And uh, and that's it. They begin the training and they're off. So I knew this was going to be a long ending here. So I'm going to stop it here uh, before I could go on forever. But I did want to highlight you know, Stallone being great in this movie because I spent a lot of time 
praising Michael B. and Kugler um, here and elsewhere. Rocky, you know, is nominated, or I should say Stallone is nominated, and he deserves it. And I'm going to do podcasts, as I mentioned earlier, about race uh, in Hollywood and so forth. But I wanted to just talk about some, some specific and some general things I didn't get to in my podcast with my cousin Phil, which I highly recommend you go check out. It's number 35, Bizzlecast 35. But I'll just end by saying that you know, the tie was broken between this and The Martian for number one because while The Martian's level of difficulty was extremely high in terms of just being a relatively big budget movie, certainly on an epic scale with a huge cast and lots of balls moving in, in, in the air, level of difficulty for a movie where you reboot a famous, you know, almost too famous character from the 70s whose movies hold up, at least the first two, with, uh, you know, when he was still fighting Apollo Creed. First two Rocky movies still hold up really well. Um, But to reboot this thing after decades and decades, you know, the star of those movies hasn't been in a great movie in so many years. Some people like Rocky Balboa from 2006. I never saw it. My cousin Phil loves it. I I haven't read great things about it. Uh, Maybe we'll see it sometime. But, you know, we hadn't really seen Stallone at full power since, I don't know, what, the early to mid-90s? I'd have to look through his uh, filmography and take that series, give it a totally new hip spin where it feels extremely modern, extremely urban. It's from a black perspective. It's directed by a black person. It's written by a black person. The lead character is a black person, and he's not just black, but he has gone through many areas of the black experience in his life on screen that's informed by his work with the director, Ryan Coogler, um, with Michael B. Jordan in Fruitvale Station a couple years before, and worked that into a Hollywood franchise. And you know what? I have to say, the fact they've, quote-unquote, only made $150 million worldwide is uh, a little surprising. I thought they were going to get higher than that uh, in the foreign market. Maybe the distribution just wasn't there. Like with Straight Outta Compton, they made very little effort in that movie uh, for foreign distribution. But what this movie did was earn very solid numbers for like you know six weeks straight or something. It was definitely a word-of-mouth movie, like The Martian, even though the money was lower. I think the DVD sales are going to be ridiculous for this. I mean, it's so rewatchable. It's such a great movie to watch with your family, assuming you don't have any kids younger than like you know seven or eight or something like that uh it is a little bloody but it's a family story i mean there's really four main characters if you count mrs creed his adoptive mom um it's a family story and to make a family story work on an epic scale without ever you know (laughs) telegraphing that it's an epic scale and just letting the filmmaking do the talking it's a really brilliant achievement As I've said, I could go on forever about this. If you've made it this far, I really appreciate it. Go out and see Creed if it's still out. I believe March 1st is the release date for the Blu-ray and DVD. You know, if you pre-order it on Amazon or whatever, you get a much better deal. Or you just watch it on demand once it's on TV um, or on digital file. So Creed's my best movie. As I was saying, as my final thought, I think this is an extremely high level of difficulty movie because there aren't a lot of characters, because there wasn't a lot of money, because expectations were not low, but they certainly weren't super high based on the budget and uh, you know, and, and the marketing budget and so forth. But to get people re-excited about this franchise, and the most important thing, if you saw this movie 
and you had never seen a Rocky movie, you probably know Stallone is Rocky and who Rocky is. Never seen a Rocky movie, you see Creed. It's still going to be one of your favorite movies. And when you watch the old Rocky movies, you know, it gets even better, but you really don't need it. And, you know, Creed is now a franchise. At least I hope it is. With Ryan Coogler gone to do Black Panther, which I'm very happy for him. we got to get a new director in. But I'm sure Michael B. is down to do one or two more of these, I hope. It's great. The relationship with his girlfriend, played by Tessa Thompson, has a lot of room to grow. Would love to see his mom back in the picture. You know, see where Stallone is in terms of his health and his energy. But this was a really you know, a, a once a year movie. I mean, this was, this was Birdman for me this year. And that rarely happens back to back to have two movies that I love so much that are so different. There's absolutely nothing pretentious about this movie. There's really no emotional manipulation, even though it gets very emotional and sad at times. It just follows the natural flow. <laughs> it's, it's really a Taoist movie. And when I do my Taoism Part 2 podcast, which is coming soon, hopefully, because it's been a while, and I you know, want to revisit it um, with pop culture, I would say that uh, you know, I, I love that Stallone was sort of like you know, a Yoda or Morpheus to Michael B. Jordan as a spiritual guide and, and, uh, and leader and father figure that never got corny. So yay to Creed. Thank you for making it through the podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. All five of these movies, really all seven of the ones I talked about, I absolutely love. But I knew, like I said, that Creed was going to be one. I've been trying to see it with as many people as possible, not just because I want to see it over and over again, which I do, but I want people to see it. And I haven't seen it with anyone who didn't love it. And all of my friends, even the ones who love other movies this year or who only saw um, Creed once you know, or something like that, are, are horrified and or offended and or surprised and or confused, as I am, all of those things, as to the lack of love for Creed. But Michael B. is now really on the map. Ryan Coogler is definitely on the map. And Stallone is back on the map, and it's great to have him here. So much love to everyone involved in that project. And I can't wait for a great year of film in 2016. Bizzle out.